Okay, so thank you everybody for tuning in uh, to this Shi'or. We are continuing tonight our study of the Paitanim. This is typically a class on Tefillah. However, we started learning about other topics as well after finishing the main uh, cycle of the Sidor and Machzar. And we are holding a couple of Shi'orim into our study of the Piyutim and the history of Hebrew liturgical poetry. So I would strongly encourage anybody who's starting now to take a look at those earlier classes from uh, two and three weeks ago to get an idea of where we're holding in the history of Hebrew poetry. And the, the way that we're approaching this, at least the way I've decided to do this, was to go by personality by personality, to go person by person and see every paitan, every poet, <coughs> era by era, in order to track the development of Hebrew liturgical poetry, or as it's known, better known, piyut, throughout the millennia. And last week, the last paitan we covered was the paitan known as Yanai, sometimes known as Yanai Hayatom. And we tracked as much as we could about who he was. We tried to investigate. We looked at the 200-year history of investigation into this paitan known as Yanai. And it's a fascinating story how Yanai went from being one of the most famous and prolific poets to one of the most obscure. And it took almost 200 years to uncover and rebuild our knowledge of this paitan known as Yanai. I think I even forgot to mention last week that uh, of all the Putin we have, he was one of the most prolific paitanim of his time, but today very few of them are used. There is some evidence that it, that Unisana Tokef was might have been co composed by him. I forgot to mention that last week. Unisana uh, Tokef was found in the Geniza among uh, in a manuscript among other uh, among other piyutim of that were attributed to 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 Yanaiha Paitan. So that would be interesting if it was as early as him. However, this week we're going to continue with the next Paitan, at least. Um, the next most famous Paitan in the history of Piyut, and that is Rabbi Elazar HaKalir. Rabbi Elazar HaKalir is recognized as the father of Hebrew liturgical poetry. He, his productivity and his, and his prolific um, corpus of work has crowned him as almost the, the king and the, the father of all of Piyut. He is indeed the first major Jewish Paitan, and he, we could almost coin the term, the term Kalirian or Kaliric when it comes to certain types of poets that came after him. And of, uh, despite the fact that he was so prolific, strangely, we know almost nothing about him. We know that we have dozens of piyutim that, were, that are still recited by the Ashkenaz communities today, However, we know that he wrote hundreds of piyutim, mostly kirovot, which are, which are a type of piyut for the beginning of the Chazrat Hashats of Amidah. But he also wrote some yotzrot, some hoshanot. And of all of his hundreds of piyutim and work, so little of his personal life has, has remained, that we, know, that we know so little of it about him, that a similar investigative flurry began 200 years ago to begin investigating who was this person, Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, and how was he so prolific? How was he so productive and so creative 
in his era and exactly what made up the, the bones and the architecture and the design of his piyut. Now, his piyut, as we're going to discover, um, really influenced the, the, the tefillah of the Ashkenazim, of the Italians, of the Greek, of the French, and it remained this way for, for many, many years, uh, till this day, actually. And the Sephardim and the Spanish, I should say the, the Eastern Jews and the Spanish Jews, had much fewer, um, had much less influence on uh, had much less influence from Elazar HaKalir in the Tefillah, but it's clear that many of them were aware of his PU team. So now, very often, the Paitanim sign their names in acrostics throughout their, their piyut. So let's say he'd write a Krova, um, and it has many different piyutim in that Krova. One of the piyutim would contain the acrostic of that python's name, of that poet's name. Now, one second, let me admit somebody. Um, now, the most full version that we have, that is, that is clearly the most full version of his name as he spells it out, is as follows. Elazar Beribi Kalir Mikiryat Sefer. So the only words of that entire sentence that we understand and know for sure is the word Elazar. We know that his name was Elazar. He doesn't preface with rabbi. He doesn't say he was a rabbi. He doesn't say where. He doesn't. He, that's all we know for sure. Elazar was his name. What the word Berebi means is up for, uh, for debate. What the name Kalir means is up for debate. Mikiryat Sefer is up for debate. For, is up for debate. And this has been the, the almost debated for roughly 1,200 years now, as we're about to see. But... Um, nobody to this day clearly understands the name Eliezer Berbi Kalir Mikiryat Sefer until today. We know that there was a Paitan named Elazar who lived, as we're going to see, in Eretz Yisrael in the beginning of the 7th century. So let's begin with the earliest mentions. The earliest mentions of Elazar Kalir occurred way back in the 9th century at the latest. We have explicit references to him from Sadia Gaon, from a Karai writer by the name of Al-Kirkasani. We mentioned these writers last week when we spoke about Yanai. And in the same breath as they mention Yanai, they mention Rabbi Elazar HaKalir. So the earliest mentions of him definitely go way back to the 9th century. If we, take, if we jump a little for a second to the 11th century, there's a famous entry in the Sefer Ha'aruch, the, the, the Sefer Ha'aruch, right? The Sefer Ha'aruch is like a, is like a dictionary that was written by Rabbi Natan uh, Miroma, right? Rabbi Natan from Rome. <laughs> and in it, he has a, a, a header for the word Kalar. And in Kalar, he mentions a legend about Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, and he says, we have a, uh, we've heard that the word Kalar can mean uh, the word Kalar is related to the word Kalir, which in Syriac would mean uh, cake. And the reason he was called Elazar HaKalir, Elazar of the cake, was because his parents gave him a cake that was like an amulet, like a, like a kimea, with written names of Hashem on it. And he ate that cake. And after he ate that cake, he was enlightened and he was able to, to sing and praise to Hashem with all, his, with all his amazing power 
of, of Piyut. A similar legend like this is also recounted by Urbeinu Tam. Now, this, this legend and the, the claim for the, the meaning of the word Kalir is very uh, uh, mystical and outstanding, but what lends great suspicion to this rumor that, that, the, that the Aruch heard is that the very, a very similar rumor was being spread, or at least a legend, was being spread about two other Byzantine poets. Well, sorry, one Byzantine poet and one Greek poet, the, the Christian poets. So you have Roman the Melodist and uh, Ephraim the scribe. Roman the Melodist was actually, or Roman, Romanos the Melod was, was a Christian uh, hymnologist who himself w- was born a Jew. And Roman the Melod, who was born a Jew, has a very similar legend about him that he had a dream and uh, one of their deities came to him and gave him a, a scroll with psukim on it and he had to swallow it and then suddenly he became enlightened and he was able to start singing. So because they tell this story about Romanos the Melod, it, and this is an Italian story, and let me just admit one more person. So because they tell this story about Romanos the Melod, and they tell this, this uh, swallow a scroll or swallow a cake story about Ephraim the scribe, it's very likely that this story was just recycled between the Christians and the Jews, and eventually somebody said the very same story about Elazar HaKalir, that he swallowed a cake and had the name of Hashem, and suddenly he became enlightened. So to, to really fully give credence to this story is, um, is not so plausible. However, it is worth mentioning that the, there are some similarities because uh, Roman, uh, or Romanos, however you pronounce it, was, was a born Jewish, he was a Byzantine poet, and there are similarities between the poetry of Elazar HaKalir and, and Romanos, uh, the Saint Roman, uh, whatever, whatever, however the, question, the Christians call him. There, is, there are some similarities to how they build their, their poems, which, again, I didn't have any uh, scope or area within to study that. There are a few, a few studies of how this works. I didn't go into them deeply for this shiur, but that is an interesting topic. Now, later, Rabbeinu Tam is famously mentioned in the Shiboli HaLeket, as well as in the Mahsor Vitri, as making the claim that Rabbi Elazar HaKalir was a Tana. He mentions this etymology of Kalir, also meaning this cake story, and he's not sure exactly where, what the word Kalir means, but he, he mentions this as well. And he makes the claim, basically Rabbeinu Tam was asked about the, the, halachic, the halachic appropriateness of saying Kurovot or of saying Piyutim in the davening, and whether it should be taken out. And I hope to discuss the legacy of Rabbi Elazar Kalir next week a little bit more. But part, this was the early re- discussion in the Rishonim, which had already begun in the time of the Geonim, about whether Putim should be allowed in the, in the Beit Knesset and should be allowed to interrupt the prayers. And so Rabbi Nutam offers a very forceful defense of saying the Piyutim. And in that defense, he says, nearly, I, I believe, at least in the Gersh of the Shbaleleket, I believe that Rabbi Elazar HaKalir is the Tana Rabbi Elazar ben Rabbi Shimon, the, the very same Tana that we mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that is mentioned in the Midrash as being a Karvai and a Paitan, that Tana, the, the Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, is Elazar HaKalir. And the Rabbi Nutam uses that to almost mount a defense that if a Tana can say Piyutim, then clearly there is, uh, there is basis for saying Piyutim in the Tefillah and we cannot... Uh, dispute and we cannot question the honor of the tradition 
that piyutim are completely valid and halachically uh, permitted to say within the tefillah. Other Rishonim, like the Rashba, and uh, I'm trying to remember offhand who else it was, maybe it was the Ritva, say they try to place, maybe it was Me'iri, they try to place Rabbi Elazar HaKalir as the Tana, not Rabbi Elazar Rabbi Shimon, who's a second century Tana, but as Rabbi Elazar Ben Arach, who was a first century Tana. So pushing him back even another hundred years. So these are astonishing claims from the Rishonim. It's clear that in the time of the Rishonim, they already had no idea who Rabbi Elazar HaKalir was, and they were trying to guess, based on a different Midrashim, precisely who Rabbi Elazar HaKalir was, because they saw him as an early figure. Even if we look at Rav Sadia Gaon, he calls him one of the, he calls him one of the, uh, uh, the, the Shorim HaKadmonim, like one of the early singers. So clearly, even in the ninth century, they, they thought he lived a long time ago. Now, the problem with the claim of the Rishonim, the, like Rabbi Tam and the Ritva and the Rashba, that he was a Tana, is that it's clear that these Rishonim are not giving statements that was their tradition. That, oh, we know and we have a tradition that Rabbi Lazar Kalir was a Tana. It is clear that they are giving educated guesses. And the reason for this is because earlier Ashkenazi um, uh, Rabbanim, like Rabbeinu Yitzchak Halevi, which was one of Rashi's Rabbeinu, and Rabbeinu Gershom, both mention Rabbi Lazar Kalir, and they never mention that he was a Tana. Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi also is mentioned in the Sefer HaPardes Larashi, and in that long uh, teshuvah that he has, which predates Rabbi Nutam, he also has a teshuvah about whether or not he has a respondum about is it appropriate halachically to, uh, to, say, to say piyu in the middle of tefillah, and in there he mentions the uh, Rabbi Lazar Kalir and Yanai, if I'm remembering correctly, it was Yanai, or Meshulam Melucha, he says these people were the Kedoshe Elyon, right? The, the, the highest holy people, but he does not claim that they were a Tana. Uh, the same is true with Rabbeinu Gershom mentioned the Shboli Haleket. He, he mentions these people as, as holy and, and early figures, but they never make the claim that they are a Tana. And if this was known to the Ashkenazi or the French scholars, we would have, uh, we would have seen that in the writings of Rabbeinu Gershom and Rabbeinu Yitzchak Halevi, but we don't. So clearly, the later Rishonim are simply making educated guesses, in which case it would, would not be inappropriate to revise the history based on updated information that we have today. There were Talmidim of the Arizal, just to fast forward a thousand years. Uh, okay, let's call that uh, 600 years. There were Talmidim of the Arizal, Rabbeinu Chaim Vital says, that said that the Arizal said that Rabbi Eliezer HaKalir was a Tana, and he was Rabbi Eliezer Rabbi Shimon. But Rabbi Chaim Vital says, I never heard the Arizal say that, say, uh, say that explicitly. And the Yaivitz in Moraksiya, he says that, that what the Arizal actually said, or wrote, but the Chida says he said this, he didn't write it, what the, the, the Arizal actually said was that Rabbi Eliezer HaKalir was a Gilgal of Rabbi Eliezer Rabbi Shimon, but he was not the Tana himself. So, a very interesting revision of this entire claim of, of uh, who Rabbi Eliezer HaKalir was. The other issue for establishing, the other reason we can deviate from the opinion of the Rishonim that he was a Tana is because we have another tradition from the Rishonim that he was a student of Yanai, that he learned by Yanai HaPaitan. Now, either he learned directly from Yanai, or he learned from him indirectly because he studied his ideas of Krova. Regardless, um, most of the information we have seems to point to Yanai living in the 5th or 6th century. And if he was 
living that late, then a, a student of his would uh, not have be a Tana. So this is, this all represents some of the early, of the earlier information of the Rishonim and the Achronim, as they, I'm trying to give us a brief survey of their of their opinions as to who Rebelezer HaKalir was. For a very long time, nobody questioned Rebbeinu Tam. Um, this wasn't really brought up until about 200 years ago, that perhaps Rebbeinu Tam was mistaken, because, you know, if Rebbeinu Tam said it, it must have been set in stone. However, it was not a, a direct, proper quotation from Rebbeinu Tam. Rebbeinu Tam seems to, at least from the Gerson Ishbalei he seems to be making an educated guess rather than making a traditional assertion. So, this is so much for all the, the information we have up until the 19th century. In the early 19th century, in the 1820s, there began a new investigation as to who this man, Rabbi Lezer HaKalir, could be. And it's well summarized at the end of the, at the, end of the 19th century. Uh, Ismar Elbogen began working on his book, uh, Hatifilah, which is uh, the Jewish liturgy, which is uh, the, the standard textbook on Jewish liturgy. And he finished it, I believe, in around 1907. And he gives a very good summary of the past hundred years of research that had been done up until his time. It began all the way back with Rav Shlomi Huda Rappaport, and you had also figures like Rav Wolf uh, Heidenheim. Uh, there were so many, so many figures who, uh, both religious and otherwise, who jumped into this debate over who Rabbi Lezer HaKalir was. Rav Shlomi Huda Rappaport wrote a biography called Toldot where he tried to determine, based on the existing piyutim that they had, and all of the information that, he, that we have from various Rishonim and Achronim, who Rabbi Elazar Kalir was. He believed, or suggested, that perhaps the name Kalir wasn't uh, uh, the name of his father. Like, some people understood Rabbi Elazar Berebi Kalir means Rabbi Elazar, the son of Kalir. Others understood Berebi to mean a title, like Rabbi Elazar Beribi, who is like a, an honored rabbi, Kalir from a place, Kalir, or Kalir meaning a cake. So he believed the word Kalir didn't mean uh, a cake, it meant Kaliari. It was identified with a place. Kaliari is the, is the, is the southern uh, port town in Sardinia, which is an island off of Italy. And he wanted to locate Rabbi Elazar Kalir as coming from Kaliari. Other people tried to place Kalir as another place closer to Edessa, all sorts of different places have been suggested for the, for the word Kalir to identify what location it could have possibly be if he lived in a place called Kalir. And it was very attractive to uh, place him somewhere in Italy because originally in the 19th century, they didn't realize how early the uh, Rabbi Elazar HaKalir lived. There were some scholars claiming that he lived in the 10th century or the 9th century. So it seemed reasonable to put him in some center of learning, like in Italy, or even in Germany in the 10th century. So there was so many different interesting theories as to who Rabbi Elazar Kalir was in that time. So some, some researchers, some scholars of that era, thought that the word Kalir might have come from the, from the, the, the way you would spell it in Greek, the, the name Seler, C-E-L-E-R. And they... There's, uh, there were gravestones in Italy which had the name Keller, Kuflamid Reish, spelled on them. And this was like, oh, this must be that, uh, that Elazar HaKalir was from Keller and he was from Kaliari. But 
as time moved on and evidence mounted up and mounted up, it seemed that no, Kalir was not the name of a place and it was not Kailiari because it did not seem possible that he could have lived outside of Eretz Yisrael, as we shall see in a, in a moment. So Elbogen himself doesn't like the, the idea of it, that it's the Greek name Seler. He thinks it's more likely related to the na- Greek name Cyril, which is that it's a metathetical um, corruption of the name Cyril, and it would have been Kuf Reish Lamed or Kuf Lamed Reish, which would be the other way of spelling the name. And perhaps he was Rabbi Elezer Rabbi Kalir, the son of Cyril, which indeed would have been a very common name in the Byzantine Empire. And <laughs> once they found that uh, graveyard, you know, in, in Italy, once they found that, that ancient Jewish cemetery in Italy, everybody was convinced, oh, Rabbi Lezer Clear must have come from Italy. But Elbogen himself was not convinced at all. He did not, he did not believe that this was possible, that Rabbi Lezer Clear could have lived in Italy. The other problem is that how could you say Kalir is the name of a place if he says... If Rabbi Lezhar Kalir himself says that his name is Kalir from Kiryat Sefer, if he's from Kiryat Sefer, then why would Kalir be a place? So you're saying that he's from Kailiari, but now he lives in Kiryat Sefer? It's, it's a bit of a stretch. And it's, what's funny is that Rabbi Lezhar Kalir, as we're going to study next week, characteristically is very enigmatic. He, lo- he loves riddles, and he loves putting his poetry into riddles. So it would not be out of character for him to, to make an enigma out of his name. So all sorts of theories have been <coughs> brought forth to try to solve this riddle. What does Kiryat Sefer mean? What do you mean he's from Kiryat Sefer? There is no such town in Eretz Yisrael called Kiryat Sefer since the times of Yehoshua. Nobody ever had an active town in Eretz Yisrael called Kiryat Sefer. So perhaps he meant Kiryat Sefer, right? The, the, the village at the coast. And if it's Kiryat Sefer, then Sefer would mean coast. And the, the, the Italian graveyard they found was in Porto, which is the, the, the old port city of Rome. So everyone was convinced that, okay, Kiryat Sefer, the, the 19th century went back and forth every decade. Everyone was convinced that Porto was, that Kalir from Kiryat Sefer meant that he was from Kiryat Sefer, that he was from the coastal city, and he lived in Porto, and he, was, and he spent time in Cagliari, and everyone was convinced that they found a Blazar Kalir, and he lived in the 10th century in Italy. But... After studying many more and many, many more of his piyutim, it became clear, based on the corpus of material he had access to, that it simply wasn't possible that somebody with that amount of knowledge could have lived in Italy in the 10th or 9th centuries. There simply weren't centers of Torah that were big enough to foster that kind of learning at that academic level, where he would have had so much access and so much knowledge and so much early knowledge to that kind of uh, to that kind of midrash and agada, which would have spurned that kind of creativity, and furthermore, besides the 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 problems with putting him there in the sense that he wouldn't have been closer enough to the centers of learning, you have other reasons. First of all, just like Yanai, his piyutim presuppose a Christian environment, meaning that if you look in the piyutim. All the oppressors around him, they're Christian. He talks about them as Notrim or Romiim. He doesn't speak about them as Arabs. He doesn't speak about them as, um, as uh, what's it called, people from the West, like the, like the Germans. He speaks about them as Romiim, which would make it impossible for, for him to have lived outside of Eretz Yisrael. If he lived in Babel, it would have been the Persians or it would have been the Byzantines, but it would not have been 
uh, it would have it would not have been sorry it would have been the Persians or yeah it would never have been the early Christians it would not it it would have been the Arabs the Persians somebody else would have never been uh, the the Byzantine Empire second of all this was a different claim that was made was that Bavel would never have accepted Piyut. If you look at the early Chuvot of the, of the Geonim, the Babylonian schools would have never accepted uh, the, the innovation of putting Piyut into Tefillah. However, in Eretz Yisrael, it was well established to modify the Tefillah. So he would have never thrived in a place like Bavel. It must have been he thrived in a place like Eretz Yisrael. Lastly, this is already brought by Rabbi Tam and other Rishonim, that he only wrote Piyutim for, for one day Chag. And only in Eretz Yisrael did they keep, keep a one-day Chag. So this was the early, uh, the, the early, the early raya, the early proof that Belazar Kaler came from Eretz Yisrael. Simple. He only wrote Piyutim for one-day Chagim. However, in the 20th century, it became many more Piyutim from him were found that were for two-day umtovs, or wait a second, three-day umtovs, or four-day umtovs. They started finding multiple Piyutim from him for the same umtov. And if you find a, a, a Yom Tov, which is one day, like, uh, like uh, Purim or Tisha B'Av, he would write multiple piyutim for Purim, for Tisha B'Av, for Hanukkah, for all other holidays that were only one day. So it became clear that he would just write many piyutim year after year, and it wasn't simply because uh, he, he had a deliberation for a single day Chag. It was clear that he was just wrote many piyutim for the same Chag. And last but not least, um, Yom Tov Zunz pointed out that he has a tendency to he has a tendency to prefer Talmud Yerushalmi and Midrashim that are from Eretz Yisrael over the Talmud Bavli and over the Tanaim of of Bavel. So Rabbeinu Tam also pointed this out. Rabbeinu Tam pointed out that in many places Rabbi Lazar Kalir seems to paskin like the Talmud Yerushalmi. So it was. By the end of the 20th century, the scholarship had concluded that Erbilazar Kalir, whoever he was, wherever he lived, whatever the town was, he definitely lived in Eretz Yisrael. There's no other way. At the end, 1896 to like 1907, as they started bringing the, the Cairo Geniza into Cambridge and into other universities, they found one more piece of incontrovertible evidence. And that was that they uncovered the Amidah, or the Shmona Esrei, of the Minhag Eretz Yisrael. And by uncovering the Amidah of the Shmona Esrei of Eretz Yisrael, they saw clearly that he had built his piyutim on that Amidah, that all of the, the piyutim followed the Nusach of the, the Amidah of Eretz Yisrael. So finally, they had conclusive proof that Belazar Kalir did not live in Italy, he did not live in, in Bavel, he didn't live anywhere besides Eretz Yisrael in late antiquity. So that was a wonderful conclusion, but the name Kalir remained a mystery, the name Kiryat Sefer still remains a mystery, and the name Berebi still remains a mystery. We don't know if Berebi is an honorific title, as some of the Rishonim seem to understand it. We don't know if it means son of, we don't know if Kalir means cake, we don't know if it's a place, we don't know if it... If it means Cyril, the name of his father. We don't know if it means Serel uh, or Seler, the name of his father. We don't know if Kiryat Sefer is Kiryat Svar. We don't know if Kiryat Sefer might mean the, the, the village of the book, as some suggested. Maybe he was in Tiveria. All we know is that Rabbi Elazar HaKalir's name was Elazar. Maybe he was a rabbi. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was just a chazan. His name was Elazar, and he lived in Eretz Yisrael. That's as much information as was gained by the end of the 19th century. 
as the 20th, as the ter- at the turn of the 20th century, many, many, many more documents became available. Um, they, with, obviously with the discovery of the Karagniza, we practically tripled the amount of data we had to work with to both from Piyut and otherwise to try to identify who Rabbi Elazar Kalir was. And although originally scholars tried to place him anywhere between the 8th and the 10th century, by the beginning of the 20th, of the, of the 20th century, by the, by the early 1900s, it became clear that this was impossible. It was not possible that Rabbi Elazar Kalir, if he lived in Eretz Yisrael, could have been living in the 8th through 10th centuries, and it's very, for a very simple reason. All of the internal evidence of his team presupposed that, his, that the oppressors of the Jewish people at the time were the, the Eastern Roman Empire, which would be the Byzantine Empire. It wasn't until the year 635 that the Arabs, the, the Muslim conquest, began or really succeeded in taking over Eretz Yisrael. Therefore, if Rabbi Elazar HaKalir lived in the Byzantine era of Eretz Yisrael, clearly he lived before the year 635. Now, one of the greatest scholars in the 20th century, and he died in 2006, uh, one of the greatest scholars of Hebrew poetry, his name was, his name was Ezra Fleischer. He, won, uh, he was also a poet, he was a scholar. He, he moved to Eretz Yisrael in 1960. I, th- I think he came from Romania. He was a tremendous, tremendous scholar of Hebrew language, Hebrew liturgy, piyut, and he basically commanded the 20th century um, study into the uh, arena. He basically commanded the arena of, of um, scholarly study into Piyut throughout the 20th century. And he opened the Fleischer Institute for, I believe it's called the Fleischer Institute for, for uh, the studies of Hebrew poetry in Eretz Yisrael. I think it's a part of Hebrew University today. And he wrote volumes and volumes about about Piyut. I don't I don't believe he was so religious himself. But besides being a paita, a, a poet himself, not a Python at all. But besides being a poet, he was clearly an unbelievable, unbelievable mind. And the amount of information he was able to comb through about Alazar Hakalir is really staggering. And he contributed quite a bit into our knowledge today of who, who Rabbi Elazar HaKalir was as, as a Paitan, like how he developed the architecture and the styles he did and how all of that came to be and how it compares to other Paitanim of, of that era. And he, did, he also did lend a couple of notable points to, conclu- well, not to completely conclude, but to prove some additional details about the life of Rabbi Lazar Kalir. For one, he found a piyut where he believes that it's basically a siluk, where he believes that this siluk of Rabbi Lazar Kalir is describing the Persian conquest of Eretz Yisrael in 614. So to, to get into the history here, basically the, the Byzantines under Heraclius controlled the Orion's uh, province in uh, uh, which covered Eretz Yisrael until 614 when the Persians conquered it away from them. In 629, Heraclius managed to reassemble a counteroffensive and get the the uh, Persians out of that territory. 
but only five, six years later, the Mohammed and his armies managed to move north and push the Byzantine Empire out of Eretz Yisrael for good. So in this piyut, in this siluk, it seems very clear to, at least to Ezra Fleischer, there was another scholar who debated this interpretation of the piyut, but it seems very clear to him that this piyut is describing the banishment of the Byzantine Empire from Eretz Yisrael, the conquest of the Persians, and then the subsequent return of the armies of Heraclius. So he concluded that it was clear from these piyutim that he must have lived during those years between 629 and 635, which would place him, if he was already a Python at that age, as having been born at the end of the, of the 7th century, I'm sorry, having been born at the end of the 6th century and living throughout the 7th century. Now, Ezra Fleischer himself passed away in 2006. His prime student was Professor Shulamit Elitzor. She is a religious scholar. She lives in Eretz Yisrael. And she is the world-leading expert today on Piyot, and specifically Elezer HaKalir. She wrote her PhD on, on an imposter, actually, of Elezer HaKalir, whose name, basically, Elezer HaKalir always signed his name, uh, uh, Kuf Yud, sorry, Kuf Lamed Yud Reish, or Kuf Yud Lamed Yud Reish. And there were a, a set of Piyotim written by Rabbi Elazar Rabbi Kilar, Kuf Yud Lamed Reish. And she identified at least 10, I think more, piyutim that were written by this Rabbi Elazar Kilar, who might have been an imposter, an imitator, somebody with a similar name, but was clearly not Rabbi Elazar HaKalir. And ever since then, since her PhD in, I think it was 81 or 85, she's written, she's still alive, she's written close to, I think, a dozen books, over a hundred articles, um, there's very few women, Jewish women alive, who know as much Torah as this woman does. It is really, really, really unbelievable. Her magnum, op her magnum opus is a sefer she wrote called Sod Michel Kodesh. This is her magnum opus. It's about the development of the Kedushta, the, the, the type of Kerova that was innovated by Yanai and then, and then Elezer HaKalir, and the, the development of the, Kedushta, of the Kedushta from early Eretz Yisrael throughout uh, medieval times, and it's lit really unbelievable. It's a 1,000-page tome, like a thick, unbelievable book. Her other books are also 500 pages long, and in that she tracks the history of the Kedushta, of the Krova, like nobody else has done before. Her scholarship on Rabbi Elazar Kalir in particular, and on Piyut in general, has been unmatched in the history of Judaism. It's really, really unbelievable. If anyone's interested, I think the Ami magazine did an interview with her in 2017. She, I, she teaches somewhere, I think in Hebrew University or somewhere, and she teaches uh, piyut to mostly religious students. And it's very worthwhile. We're going to be, we're going to have to be um, using, we're, we're going to obviously be privileged to use most of her work when we go through the corpus of Rabbi Lazar Kalir next week, because this week, the best we could do was to give a brief overview of the history of who Rabbi Lazar Kalir was, and all the research that went into trying to determine his time and his place. And so, just to summarize, so far we've seen that since the time of the Rishonim, there has been discussion about who Rabbi Lazar Kalir was and when he lived. 
A thousand years later, with much more information, it seems clear that Rabbi Elazar HaKalir was a Paitan who lived in Eretz Yisrael in the beginning of the 7th century. Shulamit Elitzor, as I forgot to mention, actually found a, po- a poem which seems that, she, that he even witnessed the Arab invasion of Eretz Yisrael in 635, which would mean that he died sometime in the beginning of the 7th century. Now, Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, as I mentioned earlier, is the father of Piyut. And in order to study Rabbi Elazar HaKalir means we are, we are going to be studying Piyut. And in order to study Piyut, we have to look at the design, the architecture, and the style of the Krova. We have to look at how his design and his architecture was the prototype for everybody later who imitated him, especially the German and especially the Italian poets who came after him. So his legacy and his influence we're going to discuss next week. Perhaps we're going to have time next week to discuss also the specific uh, Piutim themselves. Maybe not. It's going to be a lot of work to go through this. We have to look at also the... I'm sorry. We also have to look at the 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 rash, right? The, the great... Uh, arguments and the great history of debate among the poskim based on Rabbi Lezer HaKalir and his identity, we're going to have to look at precisely how Piyut developed against the framework of Halakha. And the legacy of Rabbi Lezer HaKalir goes beyond Piyut. It also goes into the framework of the Halakha of Tefillah itself because his word was so honored among the early poskim. So Bezrat Hashem next week, we're going to try to look at his legacy and his influence upon later Paitanim. As much as we can, we're going to, we're going to study the, the, the text itself. And Bezat Hashem will continue with much, much more knowledge next week. I hope everybody, I hope you all learned something tonight and uh, we will continue with much more information Bezat Hashem next week and the following week. So thank you for your patience, your attention, your endurance, and we will, and we will see you next time.